Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Over the course of my life, I've had to participate in a bunch of different team-building exercises. I'm guessing some of you have as well. And there was one in particular that I was thinking about this week as we got prepared for today. And maybe some of you have done this. You stand in a circle, and you have to reach across and grab hands across the circle. You can't grab the same hands of the same person, so I couldn't grab both of Ron's hands. I'd have to grab Jeannie's and Ron's, and Ron would have to grab somebody else's. And they can't be the people next to you, but you all grab across. And then it doesn't work every time, and I know this because I actually looked at a mathematician's blog about this question, but sometimes it does work out that you can, without letting go, untangle all of the arms in the circle and come out creating just an actual regular circle. Some people facing forward, some people facing backward, but a circle nonetheless. If we think of all the places and people in our lives that make our lives possible, your school community that helps you learn, your work community where you do your best work, your congregational community, your neighborhood, and so on, all of us operate in a lot of different circles. And we all know that sometimes one of those circles can get tangled up. Someone wasn't totally honest, or someone said something that hurt someone else, or a mistake gets made. Usually with care and calm and kindness, we can untangle those circles. We might have to let go for a minute to go over some really big obstruction, but we can always grab right back for those hands and make sure that if we stay there and help, we can work to untangle it. The circle only actually gets lost if we let go and walk away. Mindful of the many circles in which each of us lives our lives and grateful today for this circle right here, we gather together this morning. Every Sunday morning when we gather in this circle together, we make a special time to be quiet together, to step back from the noise and the stress of the everyday rush and to focus on the things that are most important So we're going to enter into that time now together, aware that some of us will use this for reflection, others for deep breathing, still others for prayer. It is your time. So please settle into your seat. Take some deep breaths in. Try to relax your body. Roll your shoulders back. Unclench your jaw. Close your eyes if that's what's comfortable. And take a slow breath in. As you sit and breathe deeply, I invite you to imagine that you are in a circle. All the other people creating that circle with you are the ones you hold most dear. the ones whose love sustains you, the ones who listen to you when you need to talk, 
who share their lives and stories with you. Breathe deeply and look at those faces. Smile at those people. See them smiling back. In the silence, be with them and feel their strength. a deep, slow breath. We gain strength from the communities that care for us and hold us. May you always feel safe and held in a circle of love. So may it be. As some of you know from my e-blast piece this past Wednesday, once again, issues of racism erupted at the UUA. You may remember that a couple of years ago, there was a hiring controversy that resulted in some of the really good work that's being done across the UUA now, the Unitarian Universalist Association. At that point, Christina Rivera, a Latina woman, was passed over for a job for which she was qualified in favor of a white man who was a better fit. And a lot of um, discussion and conversation about what that word fit meant and the, the resulting controversy sort of erupted. And in all of that, again, you may remember, Christina was on the receiving end of a nasty, threatening, racist note delivered to the congregation at which she worked. She has since moved on to work at the UUA, and this week, her child received a threatening, anonymous letter. So a Unitarian Universalist youth, a GA volunteer, a youth of color, received a threatening anonymous letter filled with expletives and insults and language intended to intimidate and frighten after his family has already been subject to harassment and threats. The past few years, the Unitarian Universalist Association and many of its member congregations have been doing a lot of work trying to understand the ways in which White supremacist culture operates even among us who profess to be champions of racial justice. We've done a lot of work educating ourselves and each other about the Black Lives Matter movement with the result that many congregations, including our own, took firm stands and hung banners outside our doors. We've done a lot of work trying to educate ourselves and each other about the insidious ways that racism and prejudice and the protection of privilege impact all of us. And it is work that we should be proud of, even as we acknowledge that there is so much more work to do. And so many ways in which we continue to fall short, continue to make mistakes, continue to break the hearts of, as Reverend Caballero says, our religious professionals and our fellow UUs of color. This tension of being committed to racial justice and rallying around that identity as justice seekers but also failing in so many ways, makes sense in the context of such a deeply entrenched American culture of racism and oppression. And it's not new to Unitarian Universalists either. There's a history worth knowing that helps shed light on the current situation. And this is going to be a more history-heavy sermon than I will usually give. In truth, the history of how Unitarians and Universalists have dealt with issues of race go back into the 19th century and even earlier when there were Unitarians and Universalists working for the abolition of slavery, 
and others who would have been fine with continuing the status quo. The tension existed even then. Not everyone was committed. But things really came much more potently to a head for UUs in particular in the 1960s. And for this history that I'm going to share, I'll be relying pretty heavily on the work of Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed and an article from the UU World by Warren Ross. So in 1963, at the annual conference of the relatively new, at that point, Unitarian Universalist Association, a resolution to compel congregations to drop what Morrison-Reed calls racially discriminatory restrictions from their bylaws failed. Okay, so the, the GA delegates chose to side with congregational polity, which is that foundational UU concept that each congregation has a right to govern itself. And the assembled folks rejected a resolution that would have protected open access to all in our congregations. They chose instead to pass a resolution that encouraged, but did not require, congregations to practice the kind of radical welcome that did not discriminate based on race. The same resolution did require non-discrimination bylaws from new congregations. Any congregation that formed after that date would have to adhere. The old ones could continue to do as they pleased. That resolution also created a commission on religion and race, which was a 10-member group that would begin to address how we might, as Unitarian Universalists, respond ethically and morally to the times as a religious body. That 1963 GA resolution happened amid others over a decade-long period in which our denomination did denounce segregation, support civil rights, and more. Indeed, our then UUA president, Dana Greeley, marched on Washington that same year in 1963, and two years later, many UUs would go to Selma to march at the call of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., including the Reverend James Reeb, for whom the house next door is named. Reverend Reeb was out with some other ministers who had heeded the call, and they were attacked by a group of white supremacists. He was beaten so badly that he died from his injuries. Other ministers and other laypeople arrived in the wake of his murder, and many UUs participated in that march from Selma to Montgomery. Reeb's dedication and his martyrdom are often held up as a means of convincing ourselves and others of our Unitarian Universalist racial sanctity. But as Warren Ross also notes, even at the time, there was an awareness among some that our racial justice was not as pure as we might have wanted it to be. Hayward Henry was the first chair of the Black Unitarian Universalist Caucus, about which I will say more later. But he wrote, Hayward Henry wrote this in 1968. We Unitarian Universalists like to keep saying, but we went to Selma with you. Why are you blacks rejecting us? In Selma, a black man named Jimmy Jackson was killed, and at that time, you could count the number of Unitarians in Selma on your fingers. A few weeks later, a white man was killed, and all Unitarians ran to Selma. Racism, that's what it was. That's what Hen Hayward Henry says. And yet at the same time, Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed notes, Selma marked a sea change in Unitarian Universalism. He writes, 500 UUs participated, over 140 of them UU clergy, representing 20% of the ministers in final fellowship. Across the country, many UUs organized or joined protests and marches. The intensity of the experience transformed them. The consensus about racial justice sharpened. The level of commitment rose. 
While UUs had been promoting integration and equality of access since the 1940s, Selma signaled the seriousness of the UU concern for racial justice, a commitment reaffirmed when in 1966, King delivered the Ware Lecture at the General Assembly. Over the next couple of years, from the days of that march, though civil rights legislation passed, tensions in this country didn't ease. In response, an emergency conference of Unitarian Universalists was held in New York in October of 1967. Shortly after that emergency conference began, 33 of the African Americans in attendance left the planned meeting and held their own caucus in a separate space. Reverend Morrison Reed's mother was among those UUs who left to caucus. And he writes, Seminarian Tom Paine, an imposing presence, was posted at the door to shoo white interlopers away. This black caucus met through the evening and late into the night. As they talked, they tapped into the raw emotion hidden behind middle-class reasonableness. They searched for an identity more authentic than the futile attempt to be carbon copies of white people. The white liberalism's emphasis on integration, they saw white liberalism's em emphasis on integration as a one-way street that elevated white and debased black. The group called for a new agenda, and by the time they emerged, the Black Unitarian Universalist Caucus Steering Committee had been formed. That steering committee later rejoined that emergency conference, and there, the Black UU Caucus insisted, using an up or down vote, that without debate, the, the emergency caucus vote on the agenda they had created. The agenda that they created called for the creation of a Black Affairs Council and a $1 million commitment over the next four-year period from the UUA. The emergency conference in that up or down vote passed the agenda along with the financial commitment. But of course, that had to go up to the UUA itself, and the UUA Board of Trustees refused to form a Black Affairs Council. It also refused to provide the million dollars in funding. Amidst this, other groups had started to form the Black and White Alternative Group and others, creating splits among even those who favored fully funding and abiding by the agenda of the caucus. There were calls at that point to boycott the annual fund of the UUA. In 1968, at the General Assembly in Cleveland, President Greeley and others asked congregations to voluntarily raise the money, that $1 million commitment, and offer it to the caucus and to agree to the affiliation of two of those splinter groups that had formed. The delegates, however, voted to form the Black Affairs Council and to fund the first year for a quarter million dollars through the UUA. So they stood up and said, that's what we want to do. We want you to abide what, by what you said. The following year, in 1969, again an attempt was made to renew that funding. A separate group, Black and White Auction, that had formed in tension with the Black Affairs Council also wanted funding. And so when the resolution came up to fund the Black Affairs Council during the second year, it failed to pass. Many delegates walked out of General Assembly, though they came back. Others came forward, took control of the microphone. One person shoved it under his shirt so no one else could access it. Later, more walkouts happened. Eventually, the funding was granted, but later that year, financial crisis led the UUA to make significant cuts, and among them was its commitment to the Black Affairs Council. That cut was then reaffirmed in 1970 at the Seattle GA when the delegates voted not to fund the Black Affairs Council at all. 
The story continues with the disaffiliation so that the different groups could raise money and money from Shelter Rock on Long Island and this schism within the racial justice groups and eventually the end of the Black Affairs Council as well as all of those other groups. Now the story is much more complicated and I realize that was already complicated. It's much more complicated even than that and I would really encourage you to look this up. You will find UU World articles. You can read Mark Morrison's re book, Reed's book on the subject. And the facts really, the problem is too that the facts outlined as I have done them here do not, as Ross puts it, grasp the pain, the fury, and the consternation of those days. Only individuals telling their stories can truly illuminate what happened. The accounts that Ross and others have been able to capture really do lift up the pain as well as the turmoil that many felt during that time. They were holding together tensions of congregational polity, a centuries-old concept in Unitarian Universalism, democracy, financial crisis, and the absolute imperative to support the work of racial justice. Ross quotes Norma Poinsett, who was a member at First Unitarian Church in Chicago, who voted to fund the Black Affairs Council at the Cleveland GA. She said in an interview, there are so many interpretations as to why the denomination got cold feet at the Seattle GA. Some say it was financial problems. Some say it was the issue about audit reports. I still believe that they really didn't like the idea of black people deciding what to do with the money. The denomination felt it was a nice thing to do, maybe even the right thing to do, but they didn't want to be inconvenienced by it. I didn't leave. I stayed on. I knew enough about the UUA to understand some of the frustrations that everything moves so slowly that you don't change minds that fast. Anyway, Norma Poinsett writes, I wasn't a Unitarian Universalist because I thought they were non-racist. I was a member because of what the religion means to me. Norma Poinsett knew what many of us white UUs have only really been coming to understand recently, and she knew what Reverend LaFleur knows, that despite our racial justice efforts and our calls for equality, we Unitarian Universalists are as susceptible as anyone to our dominant American culture that privileges whiteness and maleness. We don't realize it because most of the time our normal is the normal. We're entrenched in a system that absolutely privileges the experience, the views, the culture, and the mannerisms of white people. We are entrenched in a system that values the protection of privilege and happiness the protection of privilege over equality and the pursuit of power and wealth for the few over the prosperity and happiness of the many. We're entrenched in a broken system that works tirelessly to oppress and punish our siblings of color. And we are complicit, we have been complicit. Even as we have also tried to work for justice and even as we have tried as a movement to come closer and closer to that dream of equality, we have also been complicit. Reverend Mark Morrison Reed wrote in 2012 that many wish for, but perhaps few are ready for, reconciliation, even after all those years. He noted in that piece that all sides in the episode felt misunderstood, felt righteous, felt wronged. He writes, too, that all the people caught up in that moment of controversy deserve our care because they cared so deeply about what was happening. And it wasn't a total failure, he writes, the events set in motion by the Black Rebellion traumatized but also transformed some and educated us all. 
Only a couple of years after Morrison Reed wrote that few might be ready for reconciliation, once again, civil rights took center stage in our nation. In response to the Black Lives Matter movement, Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism was formed in July of 2015. Its purpose is to expand the power and capacity of black UUs within our faith, to provide support information and resources for black UUs, and to make justice and liberation through our faith. At its meeting in October of 2016, following a presentation by the founders of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, the Unitarian Universalist Association Board of Trustees agreed to immediately provide $300,000 to Blue, Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, and to fund Blue long-term with $5 million. $5 million is approximately the value of that $1 million that the UUA never made good on in 1970. The $5 million is being funded in various ways with a guarantee against the Unitarian Universalist Association endowment. This month, we here have been giving half of our plate collection to Blue as part of supporting that commitment made by the UUA board at that October meeting. We're working to make up for lost time. We're working to correct wrongs. We're working to stay at the circle, to look at each other and fulfill the commitments of our ancestors. The UUA board, in posting about the decision, wrote this. This commitment is just one step in a long journey towards fulfilling promises made to black Unitarian Universalists in the 1960s. Our history is not so perfect. We know this. If you didn't know it before, you know it now. But we do keep trying, trying again and again to get it right. And we do commit to stay together. We try to untangle the knots to come into a circle of love and forgiveness and to atone for what went wrong. We do this knowing that even though we may not have been the ones to make those decisions, we have to be part of righting those wrongs. It's all part of the same set of realizations, right? I may not be personally racist, but I participate in and deeply benefit from a system of racism, and so I have an obligation to work to end it. I may not personally have declined to fund the Black Affairs Council in 1960s, but my people, my white UU forebears did, and if I can help correct that misstep, then I must. I may not have kicked anyone out of the circle, but the choices I make as a minister, as a UU, impact my fellow UUs by either upholding or dismantling culture and expectations that center whiteness, and as a result, either welcome or don't welcome people whose culture and history doesn't mirror my own. We have a lot of work to do. This past week's events at the UUA show that. White UUs have a long way to go in learning and teaching each other and committing in ways beyond just the Sunday sermon. All UUs continue to have work to do on reconciling together, finding a way forward that honors the many cultures and histories that fall into this religion. Finding a way that privileges the content of justice over the form in which we get there. As a nation, we have so much work to do. But there are leaders among us, leaders that we can follow, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, the leaders of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, others, they are leading the way, calling for our allyship, but also calling for us to continue doing our own work of overcoming the system in which we were raised. 
This work is necessary not only because the system oppresses and harms people of color, but because, as Reverend Caballero wrote, and as we have said here before, the system as it is, while protecting those of us with white skin in certain ways, compromises us morally and spiritually. If we choose not to do the work, we are the ones stepping out of the circle. So this morning's invitation is to stay in the circle with me. In all the ways that you can and we can, let us commit and recommit to understanding the culture of oppression and privilege that we are a part of. Let us commit and recommit to taking it down. Let us commit and recommit to making right what has been so wrong. Let us commit and recommit to a circle that offers love and forgiveness and hope and life to all. So may it be. May we keep on moving forward step by step, remaining together even in the hard work, untangling the knots, making good on promises old and new, and ever widening the circle of love and care, making room for all in the world of justice and equality. Go in peace.